the rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi, and today we have a very special, intersectional, anti-capitalist, vegan activist, and YouTube star Catherine on the show. Welcome, Catherine. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, if you have not heard of Catherine and you have, you have not checked out her channel, definitely do so. Um, I think the first time that I learned about you was from your uh, why... What, what was it? Why veganism must be an anti-capitalist political stance or something of the sort. And I yeah. thought, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you and Maureen really helped me to develop um, thinking about veganism as anti-capitalist. I definitely started off as a very liberal vegan at first. So, mm. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So definitely check out her channel and, and the rest have just been really, really thoughtful, awesome videos. So we have Catherine on today to talk about um, some pretty dark topics. Maybe we should actually start off right off the bat with just a content warning. Yeah. Because it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be a little bit dark. Um, yeah. So just trigger warning for discussion of rape, um, of sexual abuse, sexual violence, suicide, self-harm. Mm-hmm um pedophilia pedophilia yeah i think and abuse in general other forms of abuse as well yeah so we're going to be digging into to all of this kind of stuff um catherine's been very open about her past and her experience with childhood sexual abuse uh by a pedophile and so we're going to talk about that and talk about how within this system there really wasn't any way for her to really address what happened um, in a really systemic way. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, in light of the whole Epstein case, uh, we, we saw the same thing. So, so yeah, we're going to dig into all of this today. Um, but we're going to start with shouting out the patrons and then going through some hopeful headlines to uh to temper the the dark discussion <laughs> so thank you so much to new patron patrick as well as calvin stark nolan center and kayla who are all new monthly patron donors and thank you also to jacqueline castro who gave us a donation via paypal we really really appreciate it all of our content is always free for everyone so if you have even a dollar per month to support the continuation of the show we really appreciate it you can become a monthly donor at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard or give us a one-time donation via paypal uh, I'd also like to say a big thanks to everyone who has given us ratings and reviews on iTunes. I just went and, and checked the reviews recently, and I just absolutely love them, and I love reading them, and thank you for everyone who does that. <laughs> that that also really helps to increase our reach. And I keep mentioning it, but we also have stickers and pins now that are really awesome, designed by Menika Repka of Nooch Design Co. Uh, one says, animals want capitalism to end, and one says, animals are our comrades, and they're just really great designs, so you can check those out on our Patreon as well. Yes, I love those. <laughs> oh, they're so good. <laughs> <laughs> they're so cute. Yeah, they're amazing. Thank you. Okay, so... 
Again, before we dive into the actual topic, the main topic, we're going to start with some hopeful headlines for the future submitted by a listener. And then Catherine also has her own hopeful headlines to share. So I'm really excited (laughs) about that. Um, So if you want to participate in this uh, Dreaming the Future Together, then please submit your headlines to us via social media or via our email. Um, These come from uh, Gyro or Hyro. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. Forgive me. But okay, number one headline for the future from billionaire CEO to a nobody. What happened to Jeff Bezos after Amazon workers seized the means of production? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's great. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. We get a lot of them about Jeff Bezos, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Um, Second one is African Union sends first human to Mars. Okay. I'm not sure why, though. I guess I'm very, like, suspicious of um, the whole we're just going to colonize Mars to avoid taking responsibility and taking care of the Earth that we are destroying. Yeah, yeah, I would say not sure about that, just because I feel like (laughs) (laughs) we need to save our Earth and not think about, like, spending all the money on rockets and stuff, but... Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, like, it's, I guess, I think probably the sentiment is that, like, typically we wouldn't think of African Union as being related to, you know, space or space colonization (laughs) or whatnot. So maybe that's a step forward. But also, I'm just, I'm just really not here for the whole let's colonize Mars thing. Yeah. I don't know. Number three, what is profit and why did our ancestors care so much about it? Oh, I like that. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) It makes absolutely no sense that our system is completely based off of profit. Right, exactly. (laughs) And the last one is last stolen African art artifact finally shipped back home. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's unique. Yeah. And obviously important. (laughs) And I can't believe it hasn't happened. Yeah. That should be something that's very basic to do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Catherine, would you like to share your headlines for the future? Sure. Um, So I think mine would be an end to all prisons, detention centers and the criminal justice system as we know it with an equal society, meaning most crimes are no longer necessary or possible and community care structures, transformative and kaleidoscopic justice to rehabilitate offenders and provide justice for victims who have been harmed. Beautiful. (laughs) Absolutely beautiful. That is definitely a definite vision for the future. Um, One that I'm very invested in actualizing and one that's also very relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, exactly. And I do think it's so true that in an equal society, a lot of crimes would no longer be possible because people with wealth and power would no longer be able to get away with crimes as much as they are today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And there would obviously be be so many fewer drivers for people to want to commit crimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, Wonderful. So thank you to the listener who sent this in. And yeah, I guess we'll, we'll dig into the main topic now. So we've given our content warning. So I think before we get into maybe your experience more in depth, maybe we should start with just a few 
uh, definitions and maybe some stats about how this happens and how frequently this this kind of stuff happens? Yeah, and I think it's also important to acknowledge that there are so many different words people use to describe themselves after experiencing any form of sexual violence. Um, but I think we're going to use the words survivor and victim just to retain the empowerment of the term survivor, but also the outrage implied by the word victim. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think, I'm not sure about you, but I think that our discussion might be quite a binary one, mm -hmm. at least especially if we're talking about the patriarchy element of how that intersects with sexual violence. So just apologizing for that in advance as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, when it comes to definitions, I think it's so important because so many of these words are used interchangeably and I think we need to all get a better grasp of um, these things. So yeah. Uh, so sexual assault is any physical, psychological and emotional violation in the form of a sexual act um, inflicted on someone without their consent. And sexual abuse is actually mainly used to describe behaviour towards children, not adults, which oh. I didn't actually know that for a very long time. Um, and, and sexual abuse can include many different things, such as touching a victim in a sexual manner, um, forcing a victim to touch the perpetrator in a sexual way, to making a victim look at sexual body parts or watch sexual activity. And again, I didn't recognize that what happened to me was sexual abuse as a child because I thought that sexual abuse only meant um, penetration and rape. Mm. And I didn't realize it actually also included touching and other things like mm. that. And rape, actually up to 2012, it was defined by the FBI as a crime committed only against women, which is quite shocking. And it's only since then that they've made the definition. So it's now the, pen the penetration, no matter how slight, of the vagina, anus, with any body part or object, or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim. Mm. Sexual harassment is any unwanted behaviour of a sexual nature that makes you feel distressed, intimidated or humiliated and it can take lots of different forms. And sexual violence is just a general term we use to describe any kind of unwanted sexual act or activity including rape, sexual assault, sexual abuse and other things. And I think in a lot of ways it can be really minimising and trivialising for lots of people who have experienced sexual violence if people don't acknowledge like the right terms and you know like a lot of people with my ex-boyfriend would refer to him as oh he was just like not that nice to you rather than referring to what he did to me as rape or sexual assault and yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> um also I think we should uh, probably define pedophilia which is an ongoing sexual attraction to pre-pubescent children and um, not all paedophiles are actually child sex offenders because not all paedophiles act on their sexual attraction, but also not all child sexual uh, sex offenders are paedophiles. Um, some people who sexually abuse children aren't actually preferentially attracted to children at all. A lot of the time people just act opportunistically, or the child is a sexual surrogate for an unavailable adult, or the abuse represents a need to dominate and control another human being. So in my case, I actually think that a lack of understanding of this led the ex-wife of the paedophile to not um, understand that he was a paedophile for a very long time because wow. um, he was also very sexually obsessive. That's how she, that's what she said about towards her. So she kind of assumed that, oh, because he's so sexually attracted to me, he can't 
also be sexually attracted to children because we have this a lot of people have this assumption that actually pedophiles are only attracted to to children which often isn't the case that's so i mean I, I'm, I'm about to say interesting but also you know horrifying yeah um, and really sad to hear about you know the the wife of this person uh just not really actually grappling with the severity of what this man was doing and like his pedophilia in general yeah absolutely and yeah when she did she did find out about it when um we were still children but then she didn't know what to do with that information and it didn't she never actually reported it until I came forward years later so yeah I guess we'll get into all these things later about the systemic reasons why people don't come forward but Mm -hmm. I I think it makes a lot of sense also like the idea that people aren't necessarily just attracted to children but attracted to um just having control yeah over other people and dominating other people or having them as like surrogates because you know the whole Epstein thing comes out and then you have everyone who's in Epstein's like flight logs right and you're wondering like are all these people legit pedophiles right (laughs) yeah I know that's yeah so it's just rather it's very shocking um and you know certainly some of them might be but it's also I think interesting just to note that a lot of this probably does have to do with um just power and and entitlement and um just a whole whole host of things right yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, this really highlights to what extent there are such so many systemic um, reasons for sexual violence in general, because people like to say it's that it's just a pathology or some evil people or a sexual orientation. But actually, as we're going to go into later, I really feel like capitalism and patriarchy really intersect and yeah, power and wealth Mm -hmm. and all of that really intersects with it. And we need to start viewing it as a systemic issue because otherwise we're just going to completely depoliticize the conversation to just being about a few evil people that you can't do anything about and nothing's ever going to change. So, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, so with the statistics, um, they're all US-based, just because I thought it would be easier to stick to one country, but I think these statistics were very similar to other countries I looked at. But yeah, so according to the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network in the US, one out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. Um, One in 33 US men have experienced it experienced an attempted or completed rape in their lifetime. One in five girls, which I thought was shocking, and one in 20 boys is a victim of child sexual abuse in the US. Um, And every 73 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. Um, In the US, 70% of women suffer sexual harassment at work, which is also astonishing. And across the US, between 1996 and 2012, more than one million rapes were systemically underreported and undercounted, never making it into the FBI accounts, wow. which really highlights to what extent, you know, the police and criminal justice system in general don't really take sexual violence seriously in any way. Mm-hmm. And these statistics don't even convey the enormity of the issue because rates of reporting are so low due to factors like the silence around the issue, the shame, the guilt, mm-hmm. fear people suffer, all these things that I guess I'll go into when I talk about my own experience but yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's absolutely horrible 
for anyone interested, actually, Marina and I did a, a podcast about um, carceral feminism and the Me Too movement. Mm. And we kind of talked a bit about how, yeah, the carceral approach to a lot of these issues is insufficient and also ends up actually harming a lot of women, especially poor women of color who try to report their their sexual abuse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there were so many ways in which my privileges actually led to me being taken so much more seriously than if I were a poor person, a working class person or black or a minority in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would very much recommend listening to that podcast because, yeah, it was really great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, those stats are, are very um, striking. Um, and I feel like we hear stats about this all the time. And I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know how people how people feel when they hear the stats. I tend to just feel kind of powerless because I just feel like within this system, there's there's not much that we're doing that I think is going to really change this on a systemic level, right? No. So hopefully we're going to get into that today. But I guess um, maybe a a good place to start would be to talk about your experience. And I just want to say thank you again for being so so open about this. Um, We talked a bit off air about how we feel a bit strange calling people, you know, strong and brave, etc. Yeah. For for coming forward and, and sharing their stories because it kind of implies that people who don't want to for whatever reason are are not strong or not brave or not anything like that so anyway I just want to thank you because I think that um you know I think that it's really important to talk about these things and I and I do think it's brave that you're coming forward and saying all this (laughs) thank you thank you um I kind of hope that sexual violence in general and particularly things like child sexual abuse end up being something like with you know how in the past mental health issues were something that people just never talked about and I I guess there's still a massive stigma around sexual around mental health issues but just that it becomes more and more okay just to mention these things Mm because often I just want to bring it up in conversation with friends but they'll be like you know I don't want to because there's some kind of weird reaction but I feel like it's it's so important that we start talking about these things more openly. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess I can go into my experiences. So I don't know if everything that I'm mentioning here is necessarily counts as sexual violence, but I think a lot of the things that I'm mentioning um, are important to discuss just to paint a picture of how much women are objectified, sexualized, and made to feel subordinate to men throughout our lifetimes. So I guess I'll start with, so when I was five, um, I became best friends with this boy at my school. Um, I didn't have that many friends at the time, so I'd often go to his house and he would come to my house. Um, And his stepdad was a paedophile. He was sexually abusing my friend, um, the male friend, which I wasn't aware of at the time. But he lived with my friend for seven years. And I don't know how many of those years he was abusing my friend, but... Yeah, and I don't. Uh, yeah, I didn't really fully recognize that until later on in life. But from about five years onwards, or at least when I met him, he was definitely manipulating and grooming me, and escalating the sexual abuse slowly to eventually attempt to rape me. Yeah. And the manipulation and grooming was lots of things. Um, I didn't recognize them as manipulation and grooming at the time, but now in hindsight and through therapy, I've kind of been able to understand it a little more but 
he'd often um, very much try and isolate me from other people, particularly adults. He'd always insinuate things about how my family was bad and my parents were bad and I should be taken away from them and that he was the good guy. He would do all these things to make me trust him. Like, you know, he'd always be trying to make me laugh or trying to get super close to me. And if I accidentally spilt something on the floor and another adult was angry with me, he'd be there to reassure me and he'd be like, I don't know, it's it's hard to explain how, because a lot of these things sort of sound like they're not manipulation, but it's um, it's more of a like feeling like the way, how close he would get and how he would look at me and mm -hmm. the, buying me things and making me trust him. And, and yeah, he would tell me stories like about um, little girls being strangled up against the wall and how the little girl would then haunt the house or, or the place where she was for the rest of eternity. And I could see how what? like aroused or how much he enjoyed my fear from the stories um, that he told me. And <sighs> for me, because at that time, sorry, were you going to say something? No, I, I wasn't, I wasn't saying anything. I was just saying like, I was just breathing out because I'm like shocked that an adult would tell these stories about these little girls being strangled and stuff like yeah it's so weird and for me at that age I really and I think this was definitely like a deliberate thing on his part I began to associate that with that's what he would do to me if I came forward and said told anyone about what he did to me mm. um and I think that was definitely wow. his strategy you know instill this fear and I even sometimes still to this day question like if he actually did something like that, has he actually ever strangled someone up against a wall? I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever for that mm. um, or any investigation into that at least. But yeah, and so I guess he would start touching me. Uh, like like I said, generally the sexual abuse um, escalates very slowly. So he would we'd go swimming with him, with my friend and my friend's mom and the stepdad and then it would be things like getting me very close to his crotch and like holding me by my hips and the way he would sort of touch me on my leg and things like that. It was very slowly building it up. And then one time he had me in a corner of the swimming pool and he had me near his penis and he slipped his hand down um, under my bikini bottoms or swimming costume. He like cupped my vagina and rubbed his fingers along my vagina um like yeah touching me um and then tried to get me to another part of the swimming pool to continue to do the same but luckily I was able to like paddle away but my swimming was so bad at that point and um, because I was obviously really young um but yeah I just remember him like following me trying to get me to come back away from my friend and my friend's mum but and then like one or two weeks later or I don't know how long afterwards I actually slept at my friend's house again. Um, I never told anyone about that um, for reasons I'll go into later, I guess. But yeah, and then he, I, my friend and my friend's mum were upstairs and it was the night time and he, I was sitting at the table and he was sitting on the sofa and he got me to kneel on the sofa. Um, and it was all very like non-violent it was like come and come and sit uh, sit on come and kneel on the sofa so you can take a better look at the fishes up which were by the sofa and I kept trying to say no I don't want to but I didn't want to be rude um so eventually I did and he got me to kneel there and 
he held me by my hips and he had an erection and he like pressed his penis against my butt where my um, butthole <laughs> is and to this day I still consider myself to be incredibly lucky because yeah he had his erection up against me and I think it could have been like any second before he actually inserted his penis inside me but luckily I started crying so loudly that his wife at the time my friend's mum came down the stairs and she um, was like why are you crying what's going on and luckily he sort of let go of me by my hips and like yeah put his penis away I guess and um, wow. luckily she took me upstairs and that was it kind of thing wow. um, but and luckily because she suspected at that point that he was a pedophile she didn't allow me near him again after that but for years after that I felt so much fear because he lived just five minutes away from my house and I was constantly afraid. My god, so she suspected? Yeah, yeah, she, sus she, she knew at that point for sure. She knew? Oh my god. I think so, yeah. Be well, I know, I know she must have known at that point because afterwards um, the, she kept, when she saw me crying and she came downstairs she said to me, oh, um, what did he do to you? What did he do to you? And in hindsight, of course, I didn't realize this at the time, but it's not normal to ask a child, like, what did he do to you when you come down the stairs? Um, you would be like, oh, did he fall over? Or why are you crying? You wouldn't immediately say, oh, my husband must have done something to you. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and after that, she'd often say to me things like, you can tell me anything, you know. And I didn't realize at the time, but speaking to her later when I was an adult, she said she would say that in order to try and see if I could would say tell her what happened but she really blamed me for mm -hmm. um not, not not saying anything she was like oh I had to wait for you to feel ready to speak up and all of this um when actually she was the adult in that situation so yeah I think she should have been the one to <laughs> to like come go to the police yeah. but then I don't know how difficult it is for someone when their husband does something like that so yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other thing, though, about, like, women who do, like, keep that quiet or, or don't come forward when they know that their partner is abusing children. But Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they're actually bringing about this. I don't know if they're actually going to implement it, but recently there's been talk in the UK about implementing this law that if you know about a sexual abuser, um, then you can be prosecuted if you don't come forward. Mm -hmm. And... I think in some ways it could be good, but actually it might lead people to be too afraid to speak up, say, a few months or a year later because they think they might get prosecuted. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's actually a positive thing, but yeah. But anyway, um, the, so after that, I guess there's like lots of other things. So in school, of course, it's always so normal, unfortunately, at the moment for men to, or young boys to always make comments about your butt and vagina and boobs you know making you feel very objectified mm -hmm. and sexualized even from such a young age and parents don't take it seriously they're just like oh you know he likes you that's why he's making those comments mm -hmm. and then at 16 I had this job in a restaurant and the uh, chefs would always talk about me in a sexual way and discuss whether they thought I was a virgin or not <laughs> and yeah at 16 my the friend that actually passed away the one who was also sexually abused by the same man, which oh, was also a um, difficult one because he was my best friend, but also because 
a lot of the evidence I realized at that time that if I ever spoke up the evidence was from him was destroyed mm. and I think that actually he was a deliberate victim for my for the man because for the pedophile because he had a disability which meant he would die young wow. and I think that uh, he deliberately went for those or for children that were yeah because it, apparently he had another relationship with another woman afterwards with a child with a disability mm. um so and I guess we'll get into this later but you know sexual violence very very much intersects with so many other types of marginalization um and people with disabilities mm -hmm. are particularly vulnerable to sexual violence but yeah um mm -hmm. and then I guess at 17 I had I had an experience where I was walking home and then a white van pulled up next to me and the men inside there were trying to get me to have sex with them God. calling out asking me for sex um it was like 11 at night and there was like no one around oh my God. um and you know there's this whole like flight or fright thing but actually I just sort of froze I kind of continued walking I sort of answered their questions rather than like running or anything um but I think that's quite common mm -hmm. for a lot of people to um do things like mm -hmm. that Wow, that, that's what my mom and Nana always warned me was going to happen, that, you know, men were going to come up in this these vans and just, like, come and try to get me to go in. And I can't believe, like, yeah, I mean, I know that happens, but, like, damn. <laughs> like, this, yeah. it's just so fucked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, it was very much, like, I remember telling people about it, and it was so, like, why were you walking at home alone at night? It's, like, it was very victim blamey like, Oh, very God. angry for me why didn't you immediately call the police like um <laughs> how dumb like were you wearing a dress like <laughs> all that stuff but like my god yeah um well why are there men driving around in vans trying to get women to go in them yeah exactly it's like a cartoon villain kind of a thing <laughs> yeah and actually that is very like uncommon you know that's kind of the stereotype but actually um most sexual most sexual violence happens by people you know so yeah yeah it was kind of an exception I guess but yeah when I was 18 I had um, an abusive relationship and it was very abusive in different ways but in terms of sexually I think um, it was so much to do with things like um, pressuring me to have sex in or do things that I didn't want to do and it would very much be like I would say no like five times like no I don't want to do that and eventually I would give in and be like, okay, I will do that. Mm -hmm. And I think this is such a common form of rape where, you know, there's this trope of like women like to play hard to get and men chase. And it's we, we're taught that it's an achievement to get women and mm -hmm. um, that like actually no can equal yes sometimes. And, mm -hmm. and women are sort of socialized to be polite and things. So like um, men, can if you don't say no in a super like firm way which I never did then then men might think oh okay she's not saying no like she's not actually saying no she just mm -hmm. wants to me to persuade her or something but yeah and then um so that would happen quite often and then we had sex in like doggy position <laughs> and he um like just shoved his dick in my butt and like thrust it in there a few times and there was like no lubrication, no consent. I'd never said Ugh. I'd ever wanted to try that. Um, and I remember I kind of was saying, 
I, I, whilst he did it, I was like kind of saying no, kind of like stop, but I don't know if I was loud or I don't think I was very loud or I don't know if he even heard me because I guess I was quite shocked. But afterwards, I didn't really say anything. I guess I was quite shocked, but also we were both far away from home and I didn't like want to escalate the situation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess other ways in which he would make me feel bad about myself meant I didn't feel like I could insert, assert myself in that situation. And yeah, and I remember like afterwards, I had like this, I still have this like lump of skin on my like butthole <laughs> from that experience, mm-hmm. which is really not what you want. That's and, awful. Yeah, sorry. I kind of laugh about it because I, I, I find it easier to kind of laugh, but I actually don't, I don't think these things are funny, but yeah and yeah I went to the doctors after that and I actually went to the doctors because I thought I had piles or something I didn't it didn't even occur to me that it was because of that situation it was like mm-hmm. um because I was bleeding from my butt and I had like this lump and so I thought yeah that must be piles and the doctor was like no you don't have piles it's just like skin and like um I think I don't know she didn't she didn't ask me about what kind of sex I'd had but um yeah so that was that and I was like and yeah it's only been recently that was like actually real but yeah that the skin was definitely not there before that and yeah and now I have to deal with this like lump of skin in my butthole which I really don't want there it sounds so painful and terrible I can't believe that I know the thing is I don't even remember it being that painful or I but the thing is I think that that kind of thing is like the language you use to kind of trivialize it I guess because I'm like but it didn't, it wasn't in, it didn't go very far and it didn't um, hurt that much and it didn't last that long. Mm-hmm. So like, can I really say that's rape and is that really right? And yeah. he Ugh. wasn't like that bad and like all this stuff that really makes you kind of, you know, in some ways I found the child abuse <laughs> easier in some ways because you could kind of very much be like, okay, yeah, that was definitely wrong. He was an adult, I was a child. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes harder to to deal with the like adult stuff because you blame yourself more or you mm-hmm. think or especially if it's a partner who you care about and you don't want to label them in a certain way but we've also been conditioned to think that i mean as people socialized as women or whatever like with your partner we've been conditioned to think that you know they kind of have access to your body then if mm-hmm. if you're together right like that's just a thing that happens right yeah um but absolutely. i think that if if this were the other way around like if you had just not asked and just like shoved a dildo up his ass or something like that you yeah. know like he, that would be a definite no no you know that would be definitely like holy shit why why did you do this i did not consent to this so it's really messed up that the opposite is it's not really people don't think about that in the opposite sense right like if it's a woman um and her partner did something in the bedroom that she did not want and that was violent and that was unconsensual um it's often not taken that seriously whereas you know if if the opposite happened if you had done that to to him it would have been a totally different story yeah exactly and I think that this is also something that you see in porn a lot like mm-hmm. oh a guy will just suddenly go from having sex with a woman um, in her vagina to in her anus and then mm-hmm. like it kind of normalizes maybe this thing that like oh that's okay to do yeah. and I remember afterwards I told my male friend about this and he was just like oh well you didn't make it clear to him afterwards that that wasn't okay but it's like 
it's like does does what you say afterwards like yeah really change whether or not that was rape like yeah if someone had um if i had like shoved it like a dildo up his ass would he have been like oh um afterwards he's saying oh that wasn't okay does that not make it rape still i don't know mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. but the thing is yeah. it was also like really like a non-linear experience i guess because sometimes it was sexually respectful you know and mm -hmm. so there's some like i remember the first time i guess um we had like we did like other sexual stuff and then i said i didn't want to have sex with him then and then he was totally respectful about that and i guess i guess that happens a lot where it's you know at first it starts off respectful and then it gets worse every time but um yeah i think I think it's difficult as well when there's some good times and they're not good because it's we have this understanding of like of the pathological abuser who's always abusive not just like sometimes they're okay and sometimes mm -hmm. do you know what I mean so mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> um yeah I guess some other stuff I wanted to mention as well by the way please feel free to like um jump in because I will um just keep talking so feel free to just like yeah no 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 go ahead yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay um yeah, so I uh, I remember at 18, I had a job and my boss like um, grabbed my butt in that job and he and wow. afterwards um, he was like, oh, sorry, I didn't need to do that um, and kind of apologized. So I'm still not sure like <laughs> if I can, I don't know. But then it's like, how can you accidentally grab someone's butt? Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean you didn't mean to do that? Yeah, and in a way it was like a cover up. Like if he if he said in front of lots of other people, "Oh, sorry, I didn't need to do that." Then it's like I can't say, "Oh, you you know, he did." Do you know what I mean? It's I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. and then at the same job, the supervisor, so we'd often go into the swimming the swimming pool because it was I like my job was as a carer looking after people with disabilities. Um so we'd go into the swimming pool with them. And the supervisor would always make me get out of the swimming pool first, and which I always thought was weird. And he later told me that he made me get out first so that he had like a really good um, angle where he could look at my butt because after the first person <sighs> went out, he'd have to like move to help get um, everyone out of the swimming pool. So, and I remember at the time I just took it as a compliment. Oh, like how nice, like someone <laughs> wants to look at my butt. But now I'm like... <laughs> Like, but we're so conditioned to take abuse or like harassment and sexual violence totally. as a compliment. Oh yeah, I'm sure when I was a teenager, I would have been like, "Oh, thank you, sir." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Then I had an experience. I was seeing this guy when I was 19, and like sexually, he it was quite respectful. But I just remember we were having this conversation about abortion, and he felt like men should have a say over women having abortions and stuff and then he told me that um, if I got pregnant and didn't have an abortion he would throw me down the stairs or he would punch me in the stomach what yeah and I just uh, like an hour later I literally went to his room he like tied my hands and legs to his bed uh, like consensually and we had unprotected sex and I'm just like what, well, I was on contraception, I was on the pill, but still, like, not, I don't want to blame myself, if, like, I was having a hard time at the, that time, and, you know, like, I shouldn't feel mm -hmm. bad that I actually still had sex with him, like, so soon after he said something like that to me, yeah. but I think that just highlights to what extent 
you can kind of um, trivialize and minimize these things, especially if you mm. have like, yeah, so much experience of that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And then I went to the police at 20 um, years old about the paedophile, which I guess we'll go into later um, a bit more. Um, but yeah, at that time I also went on, I was traveling in Indonesia by myself for four weeks. And um, I'm pretty sure now I went on that this man drugged me because we went on this hike. Uh, I went on this hike um, with this tour, tour company and it was two other, like a couple that went with me. And um, we were all eating together um, with the three men who were taking us on the tour. And I were, yeah, I became very sick that night. I was throwing up all night. Um, and I said, oh, I, I don't think I can go on this tour. We were still in like the, we were still at the bottom of the mountain. We hadn't hiked anything. And I was like, oh, I don't think I can climb up. And they said to me, the the men were like, oh no, you have to, we can't take you back now. Which already was weird because I think they could easily have taken me back and I was still willing to pay. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like, I don't know, it makes me more suspicious, I guess. But the fact that I was sick meant that I sort of stayed on the lower level of the mountain and like the other couple continued to walk up the rest of the mountain. So I was alone with two of the men who stayed with me in this tent. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the men came into my tent at that night um and I was quite delirious at this time so I didn't really I wasn't very like assertive from I mean delirious from being sick and I was throwing up up the mountain and I was exhausted and mm -hmm. yeah and then he just like pressed his body against me he started touching my boobs touching my vagina um and I just kept like wow. like pushing his hand away pushing his um him trying to push him away and um like nothing luckily nothing happened beyond that because I just kept pushing his hand away and he wasn't like violent about it but still he kept persistently trying to like touch me and then I'm still not sure if he actually drugged me I have no like proof of that but I just from everything that happened it kind of seemed that way but yeah I'm not sure I might have just been sick mm. but yeah and then I worked as a waitress and again at a different place and yeah this this waiter would constantly the, not the waiter the boss would constantly refer to me as like this good girl and it was so like kind of misogynistic but also very like kind of kinky in a way the way he was saying like calling me a good girl and I don't know mm -hmm. I just yeah <laughs> and then I think also um like my my dad isn't in any way a creep or anything but like he's great but um I really feel like this with so many men in my family it's very much like constant comments about my body and my stretch marks and what I look like and mm. or like the size of my boobs and things like that that like all these mm. things that they'd never say to my brothers and it's very much reinforcing this idea of you as a woman as an object rather than as a mm -hmm. like you know what you look like is so important or we can objectify you by making these comments. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I remember I just like completely stopped eating um, at around 19 because I just had so little value for my body. It wasn't even I, like I didn't even want to be skinny necessarily, but mm -hmm. it was just like completely devaluing my body because I just felt like everyone was using it in, well, or men were using it in whatever they, the way they wanted. And my body wasn't my own. So like, what's the point in feeding it? I just wanted to like wither away kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so sad. Yeah. 
Thank you for, for sharing all of that. And I think that um, sadly, a lot of young women's experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or I mean, not even women, maybe like non-binary folks as well. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if I can say like it's women's experience. I mean, it was certainly my experience. Well, I yeah, and, and most of my friends, you know, it's just... It's the way that we were socialized, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, and the way that we were taught to understand relationships and just the way that we were taught to, I guess, forgive a lot of things that happened. Like, yeah, I mean, I, man, there's so many things that happened to me that I I couldn't even probably even list. But yeah, I mean, I remember I was on vacation somewhere and um, like we were getting massages and I got a massage from this male masseuse and he like locked the door. Oh my God. And uh, yeah, like ended up like, like taking the, cause you know, you're covered with the towel. Like, so he was very fast and loose with the towel I and mean, the <laughs> towel was like coming off all the time. And I was just like, um, okay. And I would just like put it back. <laughs> um, and then like, like at the end he would like started like touching me and I was like, what the fuck? And then like tried to like kiss me. So anyway, luckily I was just kind of like, okay, stop, gross. I was very grossed out um, and that I left. Um, but I like I didn't even say anything to anybody mm-hmm. because to my view, it was just like, oh, whatever. It's just a gross man being gross. Like, blech, you know, typical yeah. man. Like I just, it just, it was just something that like, it didn't <laughs> even seem like something that I should report to anybody or, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, so I, I mean, like, yeah, many things like that. Um, yeah, definitely, you know, partners that oh, I had this one partner that um, he was such a like a manly man. <laughs> like he was, um, <laughs> he was really into like bodybuilding and stuff like that. He was actually on steroids. It was gross. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. Anyway, but like, he would I don't know, because he was just so hopped up on these things all the time, or he was just so, I I don't know, like, just full of, like, testosterone or whatever, he would just, he would be like, oh, like, sometimes I just need to have sex. Like, I just need to have sex. Like, I can't do anything else until I do or whatever. Oh, my God. And, like, there were so many times, there were so many times where I'd come over and I was, like, all dressed up and, like, looking nice and whatever, and, like, we were supposed to go out, and then he would just be like oh my god, like, we can't leave the house until, like, we have sex, basically. What the fuck? And I would just be like, what the fuck? And I was just like, uh, I would get so mad, and I was just like, ugh, and I would just, like, end up just, like, letting him have sex with me. It was awful, because I was just, like, I would be, like, I didn't want to, like, mess up my hair and makeup and stuff that I just put on so that we could go out or whatever, so I would just be like, fine, just do it, like, fast so that we can leave. And then I would just be, like, fuming, because I would just be like, what the hell, like... I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Just so many weird, just, yeah, just so many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but you're really, you're really made to feel like your body is not your own and your body, mm-hmm. um, especially if you have a partner, your body belongs to your partner. If that's what your partner needs to do, then that's what you do. Yeah. And I think it's really dangerous. I mean, it's really dangerous to even say that, to, to even tell young men that sex is a need, right? You know, like Maslow's hierarchy of need. Like, sex is not a need. 
Yeah. It's not a need for people, yeah. right? And I think it's really dangerous, especially to tell men that, yes, this is a need. This is something that must happen and that you are entitled to other people's bodies to make this happen. No. Yeah. You're not. You're not ever, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So. And I think what you said is so interesting as well about um, – how there's so many things and you can't even remember them and I think that's just so telling because the same thing was true for me it wasn't until I knew that we were going to do this podcast and I had to like really sit down and think about different forms of sexual violence and that I actually like was like oh actually that was bad or yeah actually that was a form of Mm -hmm. sexual violence and like and I think it just highlights to what extent we're made to normalize it that we can't even think about it because it's just like so common and so normal and so we trivialize and minimize it to such an extent Mm -hmm. and yeah the same thing with me what you were saying about how we just don't even like think to like mention it to anyone like with the guy um, who I believe drugged me and then came into my tent at night, I remember the next day I gave him like a really big tip for like yeah. helping me um, on the track. And I was like, and then mm-hmm. even he looked surprised when he, I gave it to him, like, oh, why is this girl mm-hmm. giving this to me after what I did? Um, but because I just didn't think I was that bad. And I just thought, oh, yeah. you know, I'll give him a tip because he works hard. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. definitely so I think in terms of like gendered socialization what you were mentioning I think that's like a really important point because I really felt like as a child I was really supposed to like not make a fuss and like obey adults and be quiet and well behaved and don't be rude and I didn't want to say no to this man because I felt like um or any of the other men because I felt like it was rude and you're supposed to be polite Mm -hmm. and I think especially children's socialization and relationship with adults is so constructed on a culture of instruction and expectation and obedience so you'll just constantly feel like you know you don't you can't just have a conversation it's like oh you have to do what they say Mm -hmm. and yeah and I think there's also so much other things like I remember that him yeah like with the compliment thing we were talking about kind of taking it as a compliment that this older man wanted me and Mm -hmm. like instead of seeing it as a violation and I remember one of the first thoughts I had when he um touched my vagina was about like the hair on my vagina and I don't remember if it was like I didn't have hair or I did have hair or what I was thinking about it but even the fact that you know one of my first thoughts was about like the hair in my vagina rather than this is a violation or this is not okay mm-hmm. it just I think mm-hmm. really highlights how much you're already thinking of your body as like as yeah something to be on display I guess mm-hmm. and I think forgiveness is also something that's just such a big part of female socialization it's like a standard that comes with female emotional labor and I guess I, also because I had a very religious upbringing I guess that was kind of heightened for me and also just that like you know I immediately went to feeling like oh I feel sorry for this man like he's Mm -hmm. you know he's clear there's clearly something wrong with him and I feel bad for him and that kind of stuff rather than oh like this is really bad and I think we're also not taught to have much anger as women and I do think that relates to how um the people who in power need to suppress female anger because its social and political power could be used Mm. to mobilize for real systemic change but you know the same systems that cause our anger are the ones that are trying to suppress it Mm. 
Um, yeah, that reminds me of um, King Kong theory that we talked about in uh, in an episode about basically basically that kind of a thing that you know men are socialized to you know bulk up and get buff so that you can protect yourself and women are socialized to you know play dead you know don't try to fight back don't try to harm a man you know yeah Um, and she had this whole idea of you know if there was if there was a device that you could insert into your vagina or i guess anus or i guess whatever I don't know if there was a device that would, you know, shred a penis <laughs> uh, that tried to go in there like without consent. She was like, that would really, really do a lot to discourage uh, men from raping you. But that's that's not something you're you're not ever supposed to to dream of um, retribution or harm to the other person in any way. Um, you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to just take it and like go to therapy and and whatever and it's hard because I'm somebody who really does believe in like forgiveness and compassion and the importance of like having empathy for people who are are damaged by this patriarchal sexual violence and then end up perpetuating it themselves Mm -hmm. um but but there is definitely something to you know, to that idea that, you know, we are just supposed to acquiesce and just be thankful that, you know, we didn't die. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of ways as well in which um, male men or young boys are um, harmed by these kind of, um, by gendered socialization as well, because, for example, even after the paedophile, um, like abused me it never occurred to me that he was also abusing my male friend because I just assumed that he was attracted to little girls because that's kind of the dominant narrative you know men want Mm -hmm. women um and equally my male friend didn't kind of saw like the way he kind of explained it to me was about how he didn't feel like it was manly it was like against his manhood and made him like less strong the fact that he had been abused and it's like yeah that that kind of gendered thing of like oh I was weak having someone abuse me makes me weaker kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah um and I feel like sex education just in general is so bad when it comes to these types of things like we always hear about like it's stranger rape when actually 93% of um abusers of children are known to the victim and like 89 80 to 90% of abusers of um adults are known to the victim and Mm -hmm. there's this idea of like you know the creepy man and Mm -hmm. or the the immigrant the refugee hordes of refugees coming to rape the women yeah absolutely and in that way i really feel like sexual violence has just become some kind of spectacle in our society like I feel as if these ideas of like them having to be this like monster is almost used as a scapegoat to kind of scapegoat certain groups like Mm -hmm. because there are certain groups associated with monstrosity which it has it's very racialized and Mm -hmm. leads us to like blame certain racial groups or immigrants or refugees and then leads to criminalization of certain communities and invisibilizes like other sexual violence by other groups and Mm -hmm. yeah that's the whole (laughs) the whole thing (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely so yeah, this is all super, super interesting. Um, I'm wondering how you think the system, I mean, just systematically, how it 
fails victims and perhaps allows for the perpetuation of sexual violence? So I guess, um, I think the language around sexual violence is like a really important thing um, to, to discuss because I feel like we aren't in any way given the language to understand what is happening to us. And I think it's really interesting as well to think about how language is deliberately constructed to make it really difficult or make it as difficult as possible for people to come forward because I feel like in the media in general it's either these like like they use language that trivializes or flattens or sanitizes events like you know he inserted his penis in my anus or it becomes really graphic to the point where it's pornographic mm-hmm. and I think we're really conditioned to view real violence as erotic because our erotic vocabulary in porn is violent. And I think the more you either hear this trivialized or pornographic or graphic type language, the more we use it to describe our own like sexual violence and the more we kind of trivialize our experiences. And then it leaves it completely unspeakable and unnamed. And I think Constant Gracie like wrote this paragraph about this because he has to write about sexual violence a lot. And he says something like um, that inadequacy is not a harmless coincidence. Language reflects culture and our language reflects a culture that does not want to make it easy to talk about sexual violence, that wants to make it difficult, uncomfortable and confusing and removes the sense of violence from the words. Language exists for a specific purpose, which is to reify the power of those with a monopoly on institutional strength. When the language is neutralized or eroticized in a way that makes it depoliticized, It means that systems and structures in place can remain unchallenged because if we can't name it, we can't challenge it. And if we can't challenge it, the power structures can remain as they are. And yeah, Mm. I think that's quite telling. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great point and very relevant to what's been in the media recently because it becomes individualized, right? So we focus on just these, these grand evil powerful actors that we can point to Mm -hmm. but then you're right I mean the language it becomes this perverse thing of everyone's just really really everyone wants to know all the dirty details who who did what and when and how and you know it is it is pornographic right it is Mm -hmm. people just kind of getting off on how you know salacious this all is and then the the systems of power behind it are, are not really talked about I mean they're talked about a bit in circles that I'm in but otherwise, not much, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think it's also interesting to think about how to what extent we live in like a really pedophilic culture as well. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. really feel like um, pedophilia is really ingrained, like we're kind of conditioned, or men at least are conditioned into pedophilia to some extent. Because if you look at like porn categories, it's things like teen and daddy daughter and jailbait which is like where a young girl lures in an older man and you know as women Mm. we're taught to shave everywhere and be super thin and do anti-aging and fetishize youth and we're supposed to have virgin type vaginas and you know I recently read that like labiaplasty is the fastest growing plastic surgery it's up by like 45% year on year in the US. Unbelievable. Yeah and like one of the common like um side effects is that you can't actually enjoy sex anymore which is just so telling (laughs) yeah oh my god yeah (laughs) like 
it, that's which, horrifying it really sort of signifies like to what extent sex isn't about isn't for women that you're willing yes. to not I'm not in any way blaming women for this or judging but I think just as a phenomenon it's mm. like unbelievable oh, um, yeah and also I was so surprised by the fact that um 44 of rape victims are actually under the age of 18 in the U.S. which wow. again really reinforces this idea of like pedophilia being a systemic issue about like or yes. you know part of pedophilic culture because for it to be such so prevalent for people to be 17 or younger to be raped it just shows to what extent we're conditioned into into wanting or men are conditioned into wanting younger children or younger people you know? absolutely absolutely and it and in women who are past a certain age are just uh completely desexualized right especially yeah. if you if they have children right yeah it's, it's yeah. like as soon as women has have children it's like okay now you're not a sexual being anymore or women in their 40s or their 50s or their 60s right they're they're never shown as sexual beings but men of those that age is definitely shown as a sexual being and they're shown to want all these young women mm-hmm. and you know get them with their money or whatever right it's it's really really toxic yeah and it's it reminds me of that um like born sexy yesterday trope in pop culture mm-hmm. where it's like um I think Pop Culture Detective made a video about it, which was really interesting. And it's like these older, these women who had, who didn't know anything, who were like a child inside and so sexually inexperienced. And an older man would come and teach them the way of the world and like make them fall in love with them. And it really kind of fetishizing this youth and childlikeness as attractive, but then making it okay because it's in the, in the body of a woman um mm-hmm. but yeah <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> yeah and I guess like going back to your question um we can also like talk about how there's so much victim blaming language that really makes it difficult for anyone to come forward as well um there's so much about like for me um people blaming like me like oh, you should have gone to the police so much earlier. You could have saved so many more children from being harmed. And um, mm. even when people are trying to be helpful, it's, it's, it can still be like victim blaming, like, oh, you'll do the right thing, which is like insinuating that you've been doing the wrong thing for so long. Mm-hmm. And like, and then, then there's all this like law of attraction stuff, which you made a podcast about as well, <laughs> which was really good. Um, and I, it's kind of like, the insinuation for me is like I'm attracting abusers into my life like it's oh my fault that I was like sexually abused because that's that I was putting out those energy into the world somehow oh my god <laughs> um yeah <sighs> <laughs> well I think that's why the Mitu movement was powerful I mean um obviously we've critiqued like the carceral feminist focus of it but it was powerful in showing that you know no it's not just some people it's not just some people who are attracting this into their lives it's literally everyone has a me too story like I don't know anyone who does not have a me too story yeah yeah absolutely but in some ways for me at least I kind of felt like the me too movement was um it it kind of felt like it was placing the onus on me again like Mm. I was kind of frustrated when it first came out because I was like I didn't want to talk about it I didn't want to associate myself with it I didn't want to confront it and I felt like 
you know, you want me to speak up about this when the conditions in society haven't changed to make it easier for me to speak up about this. And then you have mm-hmm. like, I feel like a lot of the time as victims of abuse or any kind of suffering, I suppose, you have like a tri- triple burden because you're like, you have to deal with the abuse, but then you also have to feel responsible for coming forward and speaking up. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You're also supposed to be like this strong survivor and an advocate for other people who have been abused and like feel guilty if you didn't go to the police earlier and feel like a failure if it, going to the police doesn't result in a conviction. So I don't know. I like I do. I think the Me Too movement is great in a lot of ways, but I I do think it somehow places the onus on the victims again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of inevitable in a way. If we want to see change, that always, you know, for any social movement, I guess that's the case. But yeah, like if yeah. kind of like truth and reconciliation, like if there's going to be reconciliation, there has to be truth. Yeah, yeah. I think this kind of reminds me as well of um, the vegan warrior princess attack um, talked about like how we talk about stories in our society Um and I really feel like like when we talk about survivors and stuff we're often or any kind of like that they were basically saying the stories that we have in pop culture is always inspiring you know someone overcoming the odds and I feel like in Me Too a lot of the time it became about these stories of like oh this person has overcome this and look how great they're doing now and mm-hmm. I, I remember I was listening to this um, podcast on the BBC. It was called After Surviving Sexual Abuse. And it had all these stories of, um, yeah, these victims of surviving sexual assault and sexual abuse. And every one of them, it ended with, like, the person afterwards having written a book or now they were an advocate for other victims. And now they were, like, I don't know, doing something great in the world. And it's like, can't we just have stories of people just surviving or just... Or like, you know, where it isn't this overcoming the odds kind of situation. I don't feel like mm-hmm. I've, I've like overcome anything. I feel like I'm still often like, you know, deeply depressed and harmed and mm-hmm. um, wanting to harm myself and things like that. And we like, it can add this extra guilt of like, oh, I'm not surviving in the way society wants me to survive, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of on like a systemic level, um, I know you had mentioned that afterwards, like you had actually been interested in kind of volunteering to to try and make change and to help other survivors. And there wasn't really much that you could do to address the issue, mm-hmm. like on a systemic level. It was a lot of like, just supporting people and and trying to help them be the best survivor that they could be right yeah I was like um I remember I contacted um, my university at the time and all these other organizations for women and for abuse victims um and I kept kind of saying hey look I'm here if I would like to run this kind of campaign or like be part of this or can we organize something like this and or I'm willing to put in the hours to do this and uh, about raising awareness about this as a systemic issue and um focusing more on preventative stuff and I even spoke to the police when I eventually went to the police I spoke to them and um what can I do and all the answers were either they said either they said oh there's nothing you can do or we we can't do anything or they never got back to me or they were like oh you can help out at like for survivors 
at like a one of these centers for after it has happened and you can you can volunteer and you know I guess maybe I was too optimistic um or you know my university said oh you can sit in this talk about um abuse in general it wasn't about sexual abuse it was just like abuse in general it was like that was all that they could could offer that I do and I think Mm -hmm. it's so telling that we just focus on everything is all about like after the event um there's nothing about prevention it's all like you know as how to deal with it after as if sexual violence is just something that inevitably happens and prevention isn't that useful at all so yeah or prevention is like don't wear a tank top sweetie yeah yeah exactly yeah Mm -hmm. um and even I was looking at organizations to prevent people from abusing like sexual abusers or people attracted to children um and there's only the only one I could find and maybe there are more but in the UK was one called stop so um which gave therapy for pretend for pedophiles but it costs like 40 to 80 pounds minimum per hour and you know it wasn't government funded and like that that is the only organization I could find for something like that the only kind of thing to help anyone who has those sexual desires and I'm like why are we not having more organizations that are affordable Mm -hmm. um for people who have um who have these sexual urges so that we can prevent them from abusing because we have seen that like these things do work in other countries yeah yeah and it makes sense I mean like a lot of a lot of the the stuff is like you know patriarchal violence domestic violence like abuse or whatever begets more abuse right because like the self-hatred and the self-loathing that comes from dealing with that you know it gets it gets passed on so yeah of course if there was programs that were actually trying to help people deal with their own trauma and their own um urges their own violent urges etc that would be that would be incredible yeah along with like better sex education etc and like better education about toxic masculinity in general and consent and all of that yeah absolutely but I guess as we'll go into later um there really isn't that much incentive for that because you know the prison system is needs more profit they don't have incentive to reduce that crime because it doesn't financially benefit anyone Uh, absolutely and yeah I think it's interesting as well to think about um, kind of what you were talking about when it comes to like guilt and shame and all of that. I to, I just internalized, even from 12 years old, this kind of personal responsibility bullshit of like, I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps and move on in my life and not allow my trauma to define me. And that led me to sort of be such a like workaholic and distract myself by studying and studying and working at the weekends and doing all these extracurricular stuff and I like there really are certain manifestations of mental illness that are celebrated in our culture and I really feel like workaholism is one of them Mm -hmm. you know no one quite because it's good for the market for you to be a workaholic no one questions it as like something that's problematic no one was like Mm -hmm. oh why are you why are you so obsessed with doing this when really it was just a way to cover up um deeper issues but I think so many people internalize this like pull yourself up with your bootstraps stuff um you know Mm -hmm. like when we we're talking about 
having to be the strong victim and you know this whole like masculine trope of strength and strength normally means just like I don't know pretending it didn't happen and moving forward and yes yeah yeah so yeah strength means not actually sitting with the trauma and like grieving and being emotional about it at all mm-hmm. <laughs> it means just shoving it under the rug and and not talking to anybody about it and moving on yeah <sighs> yeah so I guess you know uh, on this kind of idea of the systemic roots of these things um wondering like how you see all of this um connecting with like capitalism and patriarchy as systems of oppression yeah um I guess I'm still it's still something that I'm trying to grapple with but I do feel like there's so many ways in which um I guess I'll start with capitalism intersects intersects with sexual violence and I think Silvia Federici, Caliban and the Witch, is so interesting for this because mm-hmm. in it she really expands Marx's analysis of the birth of capitalism. Um, and she talks about how, I think, during the 15th to 18th century, sexual violence was used as a tool for instituting capitalism. And the, tool, and the dawn of the capitalist era was the birth of rape culture. Yep. And it's so interesting because she talks about how during this time, they used sexual violence to force women into unpaid reproductive labour and unpaid domestic labour at home. They decriminalised rape of poor women to undermine class solidarity, used rape culture to oppress rebellious women from bringing down the economic order, um, mm-hmm. institutionalised prostitution as a means of diffusing workers' protests. So, like, when we talk about how capitalism intersects with sexual violence, you know, the very foundations upon which capitalism was built was built off of sexual violence and putting women in a Mm -hmm. subservient role. And Mm -hmm. I think we can see so many of these things, we can see so many of these things still today. Um, Like the, you know, the capitalist system needs sexism. It needs people to, it needs women to feel objectified and sexualized and inferior because it needs women to accept unpaid labor of child rearing and domestic labor and you know prevent us from organizing for better conditions so i think still so many of these things that she spoke about so long ago are still true today mm-hmm. absolutely yeah if anyone hasn't read sylvia federici's book definitely highly recommend i was yeah. furious reading that entire book <laughs> uh just i was so so angry um but it's very very eye-opening and and yeah absolutely i mean sexual violence does absolutely underpin capitalism as a mode of production and um yeah forcing women into into reproductive labor has been incredibly detrimental and yeah definitely definitely a lot of uh really important links there um and as you said in this system i mean in Canada, I'm not sure private prisons are as big of a deal as in the U.S., but still, I mean, just on a systemic level, like capitalist society has no incentive to actually address the underlying root causes of yeah. so many, um, you know, what what we deem as criminal behavior, right? Like it has mm-hmm. no... And that's beyond even just sexual violence. That it has no incentive to address issues that lead to gang violence or like drug addiction. It has mm-hmm. no incentive to fix any of these things. Um, it's a lot more profitable 
to just, you know, stick to this free market, this free market model, and then just put a lot of money into the police and military forces in order to to protect private property and, and keep that system going, right? Yeah, absolutely. And even um, beyond like the prison, if we look at like the immigration to detention facilities like ICE Mm -hmm. and in those places you know there's been recently thousands of incidents reported of sexual abuse and uh, sexual assault and harassment and all of these things but there's absolutely no incentive to deal with them because of how much profit they're making from what uh, is essentially like concentration camps yeah or at best you know a form of prison for immigrants and refugees and I don't know. I feel like there's so many, so many ways in which the profit motive at the heart of capitalism really intersects with sexual violence because, you know, the objectification and sexualization of women's bodies serves a consumer purpose because if you make women into sexual objects um, and make, you know, men feel entitled over women's bodies, you can profit from women's insecurities, you know, that fuel the beauty and fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we live in such an individualistic dog-eat-dog world, which is also part of capitalism. You know, we're not taught to care about other people, which can, I think, increase this entitlement over women's bodies and it can completely destroy, you know, these collective support systems that can actually help women come forward. And I think mm-hmm. it's also interesting to think about, like, um, Marx talks a lot about how capitalism produces alienation and you're alienated from labor and the products that we consume but also when we think of it as like personal alienation how much our sexuality is suppressed and sex is bought and bought and sold and in a way I don't know if you agree but I feel like this heightened alienation can also lead to greater sexual violence if we're so alienated from our sexuality um mm-hmm. Yeah, and it and especially like like so much of our media, I mean, I I feel like it might be getting better, but I remember growing up, I just thought that so much of our media made women into these kind of um, completely interchangeable things, right? Um, I remember I can't remember what movie it was in, but it was this scene where it was just it was a bunch of like naked women's bodies running around and they didn't even have heads it was just like naked bodies right and to me that really just signified that uh, like a women's women's bodies are so um they're so removed from the actual person (laughs) that inhabits that body you know what I mean it it doesn't actually matter about the person in the body like the body itself is is all that really matters and I think that that um like hammering that kind of a vision of like sexuality into people's brains um people of all gender, I think it affects them negatively. I think obviously it leads to more sexual violence. And I think it leads to women um, viewing themselves more as objects as well. Um, And yeah, I mean, like for me, it led to, it led to a lot of feelings of just like, yeah, complete inadequacy. It led to me having like a very serious eating disorder. It led to me feeling like I was, I had to be in competition with all other women because I was interchangeable. And if another woman came by that looked a little bit better or looked a little bit more exciting, then, um, then I would just be shoved aside and didn't matter like who I was. 
uh, and that my value really depended on like how I looked and if men were attracted to me that would that would tell me if I had value so yeah I mean I think that's a that's a huge issue yeah yeah absolutely and I feel like even after being so critical of capitalism and learning so much about patriarchy I'm still um, finding myself constantly thinking about my body or trying to get a nicer butt yes. at the gym or thinking about if I should get braces just for to straighten my teeth a little bit and mm-hmm. and like it's just it's just so telling how even after you know you can really educate yourself and understand these things but still how much they're so ingrained in you that it's so hard oh, yeah. to move away from them so hard to move yeah. away and for for me I'm I'm very like talking about the pedophilic culture, I'm very like, oh, I need to do something about my wrinkles. I need to like, oh no, I'm getting, getting into my thirties. I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to do something to stay youthful and and all that. (laughs) And it's terrible. Yeah. And exactly. I'm the same in the sense that like, I still shave like pretty much every, like every part of my body mm-hmm. um Me if too. I'm going to be naked if I think I'm going to be naked with another human being <laughs> oh I've had laser hair removal on like so much <laughs> oh my god that sounds so painful it it honestly Was wasn't it? that okay. painful but yeah I mean like it, it's done it's it's not coming back <laughs> <laughs> It's just, yeah, it's, oh yeah, I can't, I don't know, I don't even, that's why, but I guess it's so important for us to not feel guilt for this stuff, because it can just lead again to like another burden, like we're simultaneously oppressed by these systems, but then also feel like we have to be the ones to liberate ourselves, and we we should feel guilty for doing these things, and then it leads you to feel even worse about yourself. And Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I I liked what the Vegan Warrior Princesses attacked uh, podcast said about this Nicole and Callie um, they were really like you know this isn't vanity on the part of women this is you know this is people who are just trying to to make it in this system that that tells them like what they need to be you know what I mean is yeah. women who are just tr- just trying to to get through living in such a society and yeah I mean it's <laughs> This is what we feel we need to do to to just get by, right? Yeah, and that's so true because I still find myself, um, and it was like to a much greater degree as I when I was younger, but almost being so judgmental of so many of, of women that seem to spend so long on their appearance or always seem to be wearing new clothes or the latest fashion. Um, Mm -hmm. because I was like oh that's so superficial and it's so but really you're right it's just people you know beauty is currency and Mm -hmm. people are doing what they feel they need in order to survive I think that's such a powerful way to think about it and I guess Mm -hmm. you know we're supposed to feel like that towards other people uh, towards other women because that leads us Mm -hmm. to be in constant competition and not actually unionize and mobilize together to challenge any of these things totally (sighs) Yeah, I was just thinking about the ways in which capitalism and poverty um, uh, really, like capitalism as one of the root causes or the root cause of poverty around the world um, and how poverty really intersects with sexual violence. Because, I mean, if we look at things like, um, you know, poor poor people are at the most risk of human sex trafficking and parents selling their children for sex work and 
child yeah. snatchers, finding poor, poor children and promising their families a better life and then using them for sex work. And, you know, 1.5 million girls worldwide are married at younger than 15 um, because a lot of them are living are so poor that they need to be married off in order to have a better life. Mm. And then if we look at, you know, how much we you know, colonized countries with like these poor working conditions where we have all these sweatshops where sexual abuse and harassment is like a daily occurrence. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, like if we look at like sex trafficking and child sex tourism and child pornography, I do believe that one of the root causes or the root cause of these things is capitalism because all of them are done for the purpose of making a profit. And yeah, mm-hmm. you could say, you know, corruption and poverty exacerbate it, but making a profit is at the root of it. And a lot of the corruption and poverty comes as a ro- result of capitalism. So yeah. I don't That's know. Really and, and even in like the US context, and not even talking about like colonized countries, but I was reading that half of all rape victims are poor in the US. So they're in the low- lowest third of the income distribution. And I do mm. think, you know, economic power is so crucial for creating situations where someone can abuse. Because, like, mm. if you can't leave your abusive partner because you're economically dependent on them, mm-hmm. like, what are you going to do? Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. And then there's also these, you know, austerity measures um, as a result of capitalism. And mm-hmm. you made a great YouTube video about that, <laughs> which I'd recommend yes. people like. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, yeah, no, that's a really, really great point. And if you even think about just the recent like Epstein case, um, so many of those girls that were working like the Lolita Express or whatnot um, came from very poor backgrounds and their their parents, you know, gave them over to this thing thinking okay well we'll just you know we'll just have you do this and make this money and then yeah you'll you'll come home after but um and and then of course you know the the power and privilege that all these people had to just go and yeah basically just abuse these children um it's just absolutely absolutely sick but yeah it, it absolutely has to do with with capital um and with power and with profit and yeah, I mean, it's devastating. And then, of course, uh, you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned um, kind of neocolonialism, imperialism, etc. Right? Like a lot of mm-hmm. Canadian mining companies abroad, for example, um, are the sites of devastating sexual violence to women and children all over. Yeah. And, and even in Canada as well. I mean, um, you know, we have the whole epidemic of the missing and murdered indigenous women. And a lot of sexual violence and these murders and such happen at what are called man camps. It's just basically these camps for extractive industry, extractive capital. And it just it just breeds this, this sexual violence along with the destruction of the land. So wow, I had never heard of that. Oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's terrible and it, it I think to me that really just highlights the the intersections between capitalism and patriarchy and the destruction of of our environment, right? Like how those are all very intimately tied. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I think it is so telling because if you look at all these like institutional cover-ups by like the Catholic Church of pedophilia or BBC of Jimmy Savile it all intersects with capitalism because if they weren't afraid of that 
impacting their reputation and profit margin, they would have like reported these um, pedophiles so much sooner, I think. And, you know, we create these like rich people, like you were saying, Epstein and people like Michael Jackson, because they can abuse with impunity because a capitalist system allows there to be an elite minority how, who have this level mm -hmm. of power. Um, mm -hmm. And I really liked what Franz Fanon um, said about this, because I... Um, he talked about how, you know, when we have an oppressive system, there's an atmosphere of violence, which then spills out into interpersonal interactions. And it's mm -hmm. so true, like, if you look at the violence of poverty and the violence of inequality and, in, and food insecurity and of climate change and of the police and all of these things, you can really see how these things can then spill over into your interpersonal interactions and, and perpetuate sexual mm -hmm. violence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we talked a bit about, like, I think we've been talking this whole time, actually, about, like, patriarchy, but is there anything more you'd like to say specifically about the intersections between um, sexual violence and patriarchy as a mode of governance? Um, I guess we've already talked about a, a lot of it, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess the only other thing, um, well, I guess, you know, porn is something maybe we didn't discuss, and Mm -hmm. how you know women are subjugated and humiliated for the pleasure of men and porn just degrades mm -hmm. and humiliates and exercises violence over the female body and then this can really feed into a culture that validates that kind mm -hmm. of behavior but yeah. yeah I think we made a episode about like faking orgasms or whatever and I called yeah. it male gaze porn and I can't stand male gaze porn. And you can always tell if this is, it's like informed by the male gaze. Mm -hmm. um, like there's definitely, I, I would say there's definitely like porn that, that is not like that. Um, and that is a lot more probably, you know, pleasing and, and not, you know, uh, racist or sexist or ableist or, or all the rest of that. But yeah, I completely agree that a lot of it, you know, in kind of like the mainstream is, is not great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I, I'm listening to um, Bell Hook's book. It's on Audible called Feminism for, is for Everybody. Um, and she's talking about like domestic violence and things like that. And that, you know, even like, although it's true that um, the majority of, I guess, victims are women or people who identify as women um, at the hands of men or people who identify as men that, um, you know, patriarchal violence, which she likes to call domestic violence, patriarchal violence. Um, it can also be perpetuated by women. Um, mm -hmm. and that there is a lot of violence done actually to children, um, by women or women can be involved. And I think, um, we saw that with the Epstein case as well, that, that like, I don't know her name, Jill, Jelaine Maxwell or something like that, was very, very much involved and actually took part in raping um, a lot of young girls. Um, and so I think that, I think that, you know, it's important to be cognizant of that, but to still understand that that is still like patriarchal violence, right? Like it's violence that is, about dominating someone else right it's it's part of mm -hmm. that kind of like dominating might is right um patriarchal entitlement to other people's bodies and it's often you know it's perpetuated by people 
no matter what their gender is because of, of like our, our all of our colonizations under patriarchy and this this mode of thinking in this society and, and, and capital and all of that right so um yeah you know there are definitely like you know people who who perpetuate this stuff who aren't necessarily men as well so but i would still say it's definitely patriarchal violence yeah that's so interesting because um that actually reminds me of um eric Saar um wrote a book and i can't remember what it's called but basically in it he talks about how um at guantanamo and abu Ghraib, um women were using sexually abusive torture techniques against men mm. and everyone was so shocked about this because you know this narrative of men mm-hmm. abusing women but he was kind of making the point that um, it's kind of evidence to confirm what feminists have said for so long that um, about how men and women are socialized differently. And within institutions that rely on ideologies of male dominance, um, women can easily be mobilized to commit the same acts of, acts of violence expected mm-hmm. of men because their bodies mm-hmm. are being socialized differently. And I think that really fits with what you were saying about how it's still patriarchy and it's still like socialization um Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah absolutely yeah and I think she actually made the point that uh, a lot of women who are in like same sex uh relationships or like a lot of lesbian couples um women will still experience abuse um at the hands of other women or non-binary folks or, or people like that aren't necessarily cis men so yeah I think um it's important to note that, but but still important to underlie that this kind of this kind of violence is like very patriarchal in nature, and I mean, and in so many people who um, who perpetuate that kind of thing, like have also themselves been traumatized and abused as children, and so yeah, it's just it's just a cycle of abuse that we need to move past. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting. So yeah. And I also think it's like it was something that Leslie mentioned in your podcast last week, you know, that 50% of white women voted for Trump. And I think this really mm-hmm. signals to what extent, you know, we as women have like internalized this idea that even though we knew that Trump fought sexually assaulting women was totally fine and had so many women had come out about his sexual assault, that we didn't think that that was a good enough reason not to vote for him because we've internalized patriarchy to such an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I also have this kind of idea a lot of the time that like, oh, some kind of, you know, this knight in shining armor <laughs> is going to come and like rescue me and I'll be safe when like, you know, some man will come and make everything easier when it, when it comes to dealing with this stuff and other things in my life. And which is very patriarchal, or I've met a lot of men who have this kind of hero complex around, you know, this damsel in distress and coming and being the hero and um, mm. helping you through your sexual violence, but in a way that is like just for their for them to be in the powerful position over you, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah, completely yeah. makes sense. Um, so what about solutions? So I guess maybe we can start with what are some of the the false solutions or the solutions that are currently presented to us? Yeah, so I would say um, the majority of the time when we talk about sexual violence, it's always, the solutions are always presented 
um, as increasing police power or um, uh, within the criminal justice system. Um, but like when we look at rehabilitation, deterrence, retribution, incapacitation, which are all the things that prisons are actually made for, it actually like fails on every one of these levels. Um, mm -hmm. at, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, reoffending rates um, in the UK is like 49.2% within a year. In the US, it's like 40 to 60% within two years. Um, mm. I think prisons are so bad at instilling any kind of ac accountability at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, seriously wrong. Just did a great podcast about why we should abolish yeah. prisons. It's very good. It. So check that yeah. out. It's yeah, it's so good. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think it just, like we were talking about, it just individualizes problems that are systemic. You know, like Angela Davis says, prisons don't disappear problems, they disappear people. Mm -hmm. It's just completely depoliticizing the way we talk about um, locking a few people up and that will solve the problems. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it, and it's so racist and classist when we look at who is actually locked up in prisons. Yeah, Like Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, they wrote The Spirit Level and they spoke about how the most equal societies um, have like barely any social problems and crimes aren't really a problem anymore because mm. you know so many systemic inequalities are the root causes of crime and I think like even in my case with the paedophile um, I'm not I can't 100% verify any of this but I was told that he was illiterate he couldn't read or write mm. and that another member of his family had actually was also convicted of child abuse um, mm. and yeah this is all those things that I was told so I'm not sure if it's true but I feel it, it just makes me think to what extent there were so many social systemic causes to him becoming an abuse himself mm. if there was another family member who did the same and if he was um, you know to be illiterate in England where schools are free is quite there must be something going on in his family and that's not in any way to excuse it but I just think it's just so telling of even with things like paedophilia mm. how it's not necessarily as you know we have this dichotomy of the pure victim pure perpetrator but actually you know the perpetrator can also be a victim in a lot of ways too yeah so yeah mm -hmm. yeah I think and that's I think the the importance of restorative justice that does recognize that stuff and, and aims to get at the root the root issue here and, and heal people as opposed to just lock them up, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, mean, I mean, again, we talked more about this in the um, in the carceral punishment and the Me Too movement episode, so people can can check that out about kind of more of the pitfalls. But yeah, absolutely. And and in terms of like justice, right? It definitely does just individuate the problem, right? So I mean, I going back to the the Epstein thing, like he's put in jail, he's killed, right? Mm -hmm. And then and now there's all these people being like, oh well, you know, he didn't he didn't get brought to justice. He didn't feel, you know, the full brunt of the law. He he got off easy, etc. And I mean that that's one thing in itself, but as well it the whole discussion of the broader dynamics that that allowed for all of this to happen for so long 
uh, are not being talked about at all. Yeah. And, yeah. and on all the people who are in his black book, nothing's happening to them. Right. Right. Yeah. So uh, how, what, how are we even talking about justice and especially right? Like the victims aren't being centered, right? Like what would, what would the victims need to, to become whole again? Right. As opposed to just um, who are the bad guys that we can lock up and or kill. Right. Yeah, exactly. I just think it's so telling. It just highlights to what extent our ideas of justice are so centered around carcerality in prison. And it's not at all justice for the victim, like you said. Um, you know, we need to be having discussions about what about his co-perpetrators and his collaborators? And what about, you know, Trump was accused of um, raping a 13-year-old girl on yeah. Epstein's jet. And no one is talking about that. Like, I've mentioned it no. to so many of my friends and no one has even heard of this. And I also, it it, it really is just like, oh, people think of it as these individual, this individual man needs to be locked up and we don't care about, you know, what about Prince Andrew or Bill Gates or, mm. I don't know, the Clintons and all these other people. Mm. Um, and also, I just feel like, in general, um, it's been shocking to me that, like, in the election, during the election process, like, these things haven't really, it has, there's, at least as far as I'm aware, people haven't been saying, oh, um, what about Trump being accused of raping 13 a 13 year old girl or what about the mm -hmm. 22 or more sexual harassment cases or him being accused of raping a woman and all that mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it just signals that people don't believe condemning these the president's sexual crimes is a winning political issue and just how little this is valued in our society yeah absolutely yeah. Because it's just people like that are just given a pass. Like, oh, well, of course, he's the president. Like, he can have sex with whoever he wants, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, even liberals are, like, kind of acquiescing to that. Like, maybe not totally consciously, but in the fact that nobody's talking about it. Yeah, exactly. And even the Me Too movement has kind of been co-opted by, you know, these rich celebrities um, talking about people like Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby. Um, right. And then it's all about like justice around arresting and imprisoning them. But there's no like analysis of like, um, you know, the people who the movement was created for and by, you know, communities of color and other minorities. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, by focusing on, oh, arrest and prison, you're kind of not taking into account the fact that prisons like actually harm minorities and communities of color the most mm -hmm. and don't actually provide that much like safety or prevention for sexual violence and don't address the systemic issues and yeah yeah <laughs> I I just wanted to say as well that um I really love that quote by Brian Stevenson um it always stuck with me he's like you're more likely to be incarcerated if you're poor and innocent than if you're rich and guilty. Mm -hmm, and I think mm -hmm. we've seen that play out so many times mm -hmm. throughout the past few decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, like speaking of, I guess I wanted to ask you about your court experience and your experience um, kind of going through this system, um, especially now, I guess, as someone who is against carceral punishment, I guess, uh, wondering what your your feelings are on that. Yeah, so I guess it's definitely very difficult for me to kind of reconcile the fact that I'm simultaneously against prisons but all, and a prison abolitionist, but also went to the police. Um, 
and I do still have some guilt around that but um, for the most part I think I have kind of come to terms with it because I feel like it's best that this man isn't on the streets for the next 13 years than where he could potentially abuse other women uh, mm -hmm. or other people in general than for him to be locked up so it's kind of like within the system that's what that's the only choice that I had but if I had had another choice I would of course much rather he were rehabilitated or mm -hmm. um yeah but um in terms of my court experience I would say it was like the whole process was really difficult I mm -hmm. went to the police at 20 years old luckily the police took it very seriously actually they came to my house the very next day um, they interviewed me and then a few days later they bought a camera and then they asked me the same questions and um, filmed like recorded what I was saying and then I was very privileged in the fact that I was actually going away abroad for a year after that after reporting like a week after I reported I went away for a year so I could kind of forget about it in a way I, I was still in contact with them they were keeping me updated but I could be away from the like environment at home and from all the people and all the friends who knew about this stuff. But it was definitely very invasive, you know, interviewing my friends, like taking my personal diary, interviewing my parents. And then I think one of the hardest parts for me was just having to deal with all the things that other people around me would say to me. Um, you know, his ex-wife accusing me of lying about certain things and... Mm. Um, yeah, like I mentioned before, telling me I should have gone to the police earlier and that I, I didn't, I, I'm the re like I could have saved so many other people and I'm <laughs> responsible for that. Um, and then you know other people being like, oh yeah, I could really tell that you were abused from the way that you act, which is also very like just not what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in general, it took two years. Um, so I didn't actually go to court until I was 22, and in that time after interviewing me they also like did investigations they um interviewed the pedophile and they found four i believe it was four other people who had also been abused so it was two oh. other minors who were uh, like they weren't minors at the time they're not children anymore they're adults now and 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 a 17 year old that was also raped um wow and yeah and the thing is it was kind of weird because it seemed as if I don't know what, what kind of investigation they did and they didn't really keep me in the loop that much and I wouldn't was rarely ever aware of what, what was going on. Um, but it, it seemed like the only way they found these women was from um, interviewing his ex-partners um, ex and mm -hmm. it was like almost as if... It seemed like the extent of their investigation was his interviewing the ex-partners. They didn't find anyone between me being abused which was like 12 years or 10 years earlier um till the present and I find it hard to believe that there weren't any others so I kind of was questioning mm -hmm. how well they had done the investigation but the policewoman on my case was so overworked and she was often like mentioning how there were so few people working in the department and things like that so mm -hmm. um but yeah anyway <laughs> up to like the court um it was incredibly traumatizing I would say I went to the court I wasn't told that like the man would be just in the corridor I had to walk past him several times oh, God. and it was so terrifying yeah because I hadn't seen him in 
many years at that point. Ugh. And I just, no one had warned me that he would be there. I really had so very little support. I had absolutely no one. Oh my God. No counselling at the time. No one telling me what questions they would possibly ask me at court at all. Um, wow. No one telling me how it would go. Like, there was a victim, um, like a support worker, I guess, but she only got in touch maybe a week or two before, and I was like, okay, you know, this isn't going to be much help now. Mm -hmm. So, um, but she wasn't, she wouldn't have been able to answer what questions they're going to ask. It was, it was really like throwing you in the deep end. Um, and then they had all these like volunteer victim support people at the court, but they were very unhelpful and said so many stupid things. That I, I just feel like there should be people who are paid or at least trained to do that kind of work if being at mm -hmm. court with vulnerable people because I remember being like oh I really wasn't expecting him just to, to see him there um, mm -hmm. and to walk past him like someone should have warned me and they were like oh what did you expect of course he's going to be here <laughs> and like I don't know there was so much and the thing is it was so difficult looking at him as well because he looked so sad and mm -hmm. I really had this like feeling of feeling sorry for him and I do think probably it, he was sort of manipulating me in the way he was looking at my face and mm -hmm. making me feel sorry for him and anyway and I actually yeah going into the court was also difficult because so the way it worked was like the first hour they would play the um they would play like my the recording of when they came to my house and recorded what I was saying. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second hour, the defendant um, asked me all these questions. So the person on the side of the pedophile. Um, and it felt really unfair because I, like the prosecutor only asked me like two questions right at the end. And the defendant had so much time to, to really like undermine my credibility, plausibility, mm -hmm. consistency. And it was so... It was really like he kept telling me I was embellishing the truth and he was trying to confuse me with all these dates like this happened in 2004 and oh this happened in 20, 2006 and like I don't know mm -hmm. it was really kind of confusing and that's awful he, it's like well I was a child dude I don't know yeah. if it was like oh it was April 29th at 5 p.m in 2004 sir like yeah, what the hell exactly <laughs> exactly and and he brought up this picture of us of the swimming pool I was in um and then he was like oh where were you in the swimming pool and that again is very traumatizing you know seeing that swimming pool again right, yeah um but also it was so manipulative because the way it was positioned was deliberately so I couldn't actually see the part where I was had been so I had to sort of say oh you can't see on this image but then that kind of made me look like I didn't know what I was talking about because I was like, oh, it's not on here. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, he kept putting these words in my mouth like I apparently he said, oh, I flicked. He flicked my vagina when I was like, I, I never said that. And mm -hmm. and he had my whole diet, my personal diary of where I had written in all like stuff that had happened. And he could he could read all through that to to use that against me. Um, and use that against me when interviewing my friends because he wanted to interview all my friends as well. And oh my God. Uh, it was just like, um, and then also there were so many like victim blaming elements because he kept fixating on what I was wearing in the swimming pool. So he was like, why are you wearing a swimming, pool, um, a swimming costume or a bikini? And it was like, does it matter? If I'm, mm -hmm. um, and I think part of it was like, it made sense because I guess at one point I had referred to what I was wearing as a swimming costume and another time I'd referred to it as a bikini. But also like, you know, how I maybe was seven, I don't know how old I was. How am I supposed to 
remember yeah. exactly. Right. And why does it matter? Like it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> um, but also, I, I, I think I understand why there is this jury. But I felt like there were so many things that they just didn't understand. Like I don't think they would necessarily understand that trauma distorts memory, or understand mm. that you're not going to remember all this, or. Um, like there was just so much information that I wasn't allowed to say that I thought was relevant. For example, you know, my friend who had also been abused by the same man, I wasn't allowed to mention that at all. They completely removed that from my statement because like there wasn't, because he was no longer alive to speak on his own behalf, but both me and my, and his mother could like vouch for, for him. Mm -hmm. And yet that wasn't enough. And it was kind of frustrating and but I definitely felt that, like, I remember thinking as I was in court how, like, when it came to, like, the hierarchy of believability, I definitely sat fairly high in terms of the fact that, like, um, it was an all-white jury and I was white and, mm -hmm. you know, I was had just finished university and he mm -hmm. mentioned, like, the person on my side mentioned, oh, she's just finished university. And I remember afterwards... Um, <laughs> it was just so telling about how, to what extent it's about privilege and and psycho psychology, because he was kind of the prosecutor was annoyed with the policewoman because the policewoman had just told um, the prosecutor, oh, okay, um, Catherine has just graduated with these like top marks from university, and he said to her, why didn't you tell me that before? I would have mentioned it in court, and I was like, I, it was like he was specific saying basically oh um when he was introducing me that that would have helped my case by making it clear <laughs> that I was intelligent or had you know that that would somehow help you know yeah and it just was so eye-opening to me and I remember the the policewoman referred to me as a good victim and that the oh other women God. were good victims and um and I was like hmm, like what do you mean by that and and but the thing is I knew what she meant because she was basically saying you know we we I, I have no idea what the other women were I never met them but I guess for her there's like if if you're maybe working class or a person of color or a minority in any other way you're far less likely to be, be believed and in that sense mm -hmm. we were what she thought of as like good victims or and I don't know mm -hmm. to me that just like epitomizes the problem with the whole criminal justice system as it's not about actually the facts and the it's about how to I don't know psychologically get people on your side do you mm -hmm. know what I mean yeah absolutely yeah that's <sighs> disgusting yeah and anyway he was sentenced for 13 years in prison um mm. and um I was like happy about that but then I also thought like if you compare it to you know I think you get like you can get like 14 years for drug possession mm. um, with intention to supply in England and you can get like 12 years for robbery. And in a way, there was like four or five of us at least. And between us, you know, you get, he got like three years for each of us. I mean, I'm against prison, so this shouldn't matter. But I'm just saying mm -hmm. like, again, it's just another way in which it shows like that these things aren't taken that seriously as like surely it's more important than drug possession or or an object that's being robbed I don't know mm -hmm. yeah of course yeah you're you're affecting like so many people's lives uh forever yeah yeah exactly yeah I mean clearly we're both abolitionists but 
at this current juncture, I mean, yeah, like, like, what else do you do? We don't have a system in place that would allow for restorative justice um, and to actually work through any of this stuff in a more holistic and productive way. So, yeah, I mean, of course, people who are abusing young children shouldn't be uh, allowed to just keep doing that, right? Yeah, and it does. It is difficult sometimes because. Um, so I was also told that he's on some kind of. I'm not sure what it's called, but like probation, I guess. Where when he comes out, he um, will be put on a list. So like, he, if he ever goes to apply for a job, he has to put that he's been to prison and what he's been to prison for. And he constantly has people surveying him, like um, police coming to his house and. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not allowed to sleep at anyone's house without uh, someone coming to like survey the house first and you know and I just think what kind of a life will he have afterwards in terms of it's going to be hard for him to get any kind of job and if we look at the um, reconviction rate it's very likely that he's probably going to reoffend. and there's mm-hmm. absolutely it's such poor rehabilitation in prison so of course like he's not going to be rehabilitated and I know to a lot of people it probably sounds weird to have empathy for someone like that but it's it is hard sometimes to think about the ways in which like what will what will happen to him when he comes out and yeah yeah I mean it is I mean it's just sad knowing that we're not making anything better and and like Angela Davis said you know we're just disappearing people right like it is sad to think okay this person could I, I don't know, could potentially be helped or at least whatever it is inside of them that is making them have these drives to abuse um, people and especially young children. Um, we're not even trying. We're not, we're not even going to try to address any of that. We're just going mm-hmm. to make sure that they have the most miserable life possible. And that doesn't, that doesn't, um, mean that they're not going to reoffend. So it's not even like we're even protecting other young people um, from being abused from this exact same person, right? So it's just a sad yeah. system all around. Yeah, absolutely. And if if anything, I feel like rather than rehabilitating, I feel like prison dehabilitates you, you know, oh, yes. it, it, it like, it pushes you down, it makes you feel terrible. It, it like you, removes you from all your support systems. Mm-hmm. And it takes away your humanity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> knowing how terrible that is, I guess, uh, what would you say would be some actual productive solutions that perhaps address things on more of a systemic level? Yeah, so I guess I really think we need to reconceptualize how we think about justice. And I love the work of um, Claire McGlynn and Nicole Westmerland. And they did research on survivors of sexual assault and abuse and their conceptions of justice. And they they found that survivors um, actually didn't see things like the criminal justice system and these individual like punitive outcomes as justice in any way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so telling. We need to listen to this stuff. We need to listen to what people... what people actually think is justice what survivors actually mm-hmm. want and they refer to it as like kaleidoscopic justice and um you know individuals understanding of what justice is is like constantly changing it's not linear um no person's abuse is the same so no justice is the same and that's so true for me what I thought of as justice when I was 12 was so different from what I think of as justice today it's not like a linear process 
Mm-hmm. Um, but they the the what the main ones or some of the main ones they talk about is like prevention is justice. So and I these I really highly agree with these. They like talk about how um, you know prevention would involve um, campaigns, education, challenging media representations, shifting social and cultural and institutional norms. They talk about connectedness as justice, about being valued as a whole person, again, in society, treated with dignity and respect and rebuilding your life and giving people a voice as justice to give, to allow you to voice the harms that you have, that have been inflicted on you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it's so interesting because all of these forms of justice were so focused on um, allowing us to feel, to live in a more just, like, that justice was about living in a more just society it wasn't at all about just locking someone away and that's dealing with a solution it's about having equality Mm -hmm. having yeah prevention and justice and yeah um Mm -hmm. but I guess other than that I would also want like transformative justice is I think is also another one which is like um you know community processes where it's generally like generally some kind of dialogue between victor victim and the person who perpetrated and giving them the possibility to see how you were harmed and things like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. but i also think like solutions need to be about dismantling capitalism and patriarchy mm-hmm. agitating organizing educating all of that mm-hmm. and i think rehabilitation like having some kind of rehabilitation to prevent sexual violence like we spoke about to help people who have sexual like um, sexual attraction to children or feel like they're going to rape to help have some kind of processes mm-hmm. in practice in place for them and yeah just it's just about having you know schools and education and healthcare and facilities mm-hmm. for everyone you know mental health to be universally available you know like people are like oh it's so unrealistic but like in the UK we spend like 40,000 or more than 40,000 a year for on prisons can't some of that be Mm -hmm. can't some of that be like reallocated Mm -hmm. and yeah I I like on how on the lockdown podcast which I'd recommend they talk about how instead of thinking about rehabilitation as like happening after you after you have experienced after you feel like an attraction to a child or something how everyone should be habilitated in our lives so we should all be having like supportive loving relationships and mm-hmm. having education and healthcare and support and all these things so like to prevent these things from ever happening because we live in an equal and just society you know community care structures and mm-hmm. yeah 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 <laughs> I, I also yeah just community care structures I think are so important as well for children because I didn't have the type of um, familial relationships that meant I felt in any way possible to talk to my parents about what happened but mm. if you have like community care structures where you're not just reliant on family then it makes it so much easier um, mm. and as well you know better sex education giving us the language and the skills to understand sexual abuse and mm. um, yeah these kind of things <laughs> what yeah. do you think Mixi? I agree with all of that. I think that's that's (laughs) awesome. A really holistic look. Yeah, I completely agree that, you know, as we said, a lot of this stuff is so linked to um, capitalism and to poverty and to patriarchy, etc. So really, really dismantling 
these systems that give so many people power over other people and to make so many people feel entitled to that power over other people um, and also put people in situations where they are incapable of leaving a bad situation due to not having that capital, not having that power over. So that's all incredibly important. Um, yeah, just really dealing with the way that we portray sexuality to people in our media, etc. Way better education around consent, etc. Um, I want to shout out my partner because my partner actually recently led this workshop for, uh, I guess, teenage boys about consent and um, and how it just went really, really well. And That's he was amazing. saying, yeah, and he was saying that, you know, it's it was really heartening to think that these young guys, like they, they are so much more advanced on this stuff than, um, than even like we were at that age. Right. Um, which is really, really great. Um, really, really great. And yeah, definitely having, yeah, just basically everything we said was just great. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, I, as like outside of focusing on dismantling the systems that, that lead to this stuff, um, also definitely, uh, working towards a, a system of, you know, restorative justice and one that isn't just about, uh, punition and, and carcerality, et cetera. Yeah. And I just want to add as well on like a more personal level that often I feel like as victims of abuse or any kind of suffering, I suppose, it's almost as if we're taught that through like PTSD treatment or cognitive behavioral treatment, like it's the onus is on us to correct our perception of ourselves or to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and all of that and mm-hmm. um it's kind of very depoliticizing and pacifying the way therapists or other people sort of talk to you about about your abuse and it's like you know the way to deal with it is through these self-care practices that are often about like um taking a bath or ha- or going on a nice walk or things like that and i f- i feel as if we really need to have like i don't know it like dealing with it on a personal level isn't this like a linear thing and it isn't and it shouldn't just be about correcting our perception of ourselves or thinking about the situations differently i think it can also be really helpful to you know go out and protest and be mm-hmm. angry and reclaim that anger for protect for productive things and Mm-hmm. Um, engaging in act- activism and actually reading feminist literature has been so useful for me um, and yeah get away from this this very like self-empowerment kind of type of depoliticizing form of dealing with trauma mm-hmm. yeah yeah I completely agree well thank you so much Catherine for coming on and, and talking about all of this I thought it was a fascinating discussion a really important discussion um is there any any uh final thoughts you'd like to offer and before we leave or or if not could you shout out to people where they can find you online um yeah i don't really have any final thoughts but maybe we could leave some links to um like for resources in the Mm. description box but yeah i i'm just Catherine on youtube but 
my name is spelled really weird, so it's K-A-T-H-R-I-N. <laughs> um, yeah, and on YouTube and on Twitter, you can find me there as well. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, so I will definitely link some resources in the description box, and I will link links that you can check Catherine out. She's cool. And uh, yeah, just thanks again, and we will see you next time. She's cool.